Chapter 22, Part 2 of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Muehlbach. The Plan of the Escape. Meanwhile, Mr. Simon had taken her place upon the chair near the open door in the porter's lodge, and sat there with her cold, immovable face staring into empty space with her great coal-black glistening eyes, while her hands were busy flying, making the polished knitting needles click against each other. She was still sitting there, when at last her husband came down the stairs to open the outer doors of the temple, conduct his friends past the inner court, and to bring back the two officials who were to keep guard during the night. They passed the knitter with a friendly salutation and a bit of pleasantry. Tula stopped a moment to ask the woman after her welfare, and to say a few smooth words to her about her courage and her great force of character she listened quietly let him go on with his talk and when he had ended slowly raised her great eyes from her knitting to him you are a traitor she said with coldness and without any agitation yes you are a traitor and you too will have your turn at the guillotine Toulon paled a little, but collected himself immediately, took leave of the knitter with a smile, and hastened after the officials, who were waiting for him at the open door, the two who were to hold the watch during the night having already entered. Simon closed the door after them, exchanged a few words with them, and then went into his lodge to join his rigid better half. This has been a pleasant afternoon, and it is a great pity that it is gone, for I have had a very good time. We have played cards, songs, smoked, and Tula has made jokes and told stories, and made much fun. I always wonder where he gets so many fine stories, and he tells them so well that I could hear him day and night. Now that he is gone, it seems tedious and dull enough here. Well, we must comfort ourselves that tomorrow will come by and by. What do you mean by that? asked his wife sternly. What sort of a day do you expect tomorrow to be? A pleasant day, my dear Eloise, for Citizen Toulon will have the watch again. I begged him so long that he at last promised to exchange with Citizen Pelton, whose turn regularly comes tomorrow. Pelton is not well, and it would be very hard for him to sit up there all day, and besides, he would be dreadfully stupid. It is a great deal pleasanter to have Toulon here with his jokes and jolly stories, and so I begged him to come and take Pelton's place. He is going to accommodate me and come. His wife did not answer a word, but broke out in a burst of shrill, mocking laughter, and with her angry black eyes she scrutinized her husband's red, bloated face, as though she were reading him through and through. "'What are you laughing at?' he asked angrily. "'I would like to be beyond hearing when you give way in that style. What are you laughing at?' "'Because I wonder at you, you Jack,' she answered sharply, "'because you are determined to make an ass of yourself "'and let dust be thrown in your eyes "'and put yourself at the disposal of everyone "'who soaps you over with smooth words. "'Come,' said Simon, "'none of that coarseness, and if you hissed,' she answered commandingly, "'I will show you at once that I have told you the truth "'and that you are making an ass of yourself, "'or at least that you are on the point of doing so. "'Now listen.' 
The knitter laid her work aside and had a long conversation in a whisper with her husband. When it ended, Simon stood up wearing a dark look and walked slowly backward and forward in the little room. Then he stopped and shook his fist threateningly at the room above. She shall pay for this, he muttered. By God in heaven, she shall pay for this. She is a good-for-nothing seducer. Even in prison, she does not leave off coquetting and flirting and turning the heads of the men. It is disgraceful, thoroughly disgraceful, and she shall pay for it. I will soon find means to have my revenge on her. During the whole evening, Mistress Tyson did not leave her place behind the glass door for a moment, and at each stolen glance which the queen cast thither, she always encountered the malicious, glaring eyes of the keeper, directed at her with an impudent coolness. At last came the hour of going to bed, the hour to which the queen looked impatiently forward. At night she was at least alone and unguarded, after the death of the king it had been found superfluous to trouble the officials with the wearisome night watches and they were satisfied after darkness had set in and the candles were lighted with locking the three doors which led to the inner rooms did marie antoinette weep and moan at night did she talk with her sister did she walk disconsolately up and down her room the republic granted her the privilege she could during the night at least have a few hours of freedom and of solitude. But during the night, Marie Antoinette did not weep or moan. This night, her thoughts were not directed to the sad past, but to the future, for the first ray of hope which had fallen upon her path for a long time now encountered her. To escape, to be free, she said, and the shadow of a smile flitted over her face. Can you believe it? Do you consider it possible, sister? i should like to believe it whispered elizabeth but there is something in my heart that reminds me of veron and i only pray to god that he would give us strength to bear all the ills they inflict upon us we must above all things keep our calmness and steadfastness and be prepared for the worst as well as the best yes you are right we must do that said marie antoinette collecting herself when one has suffered as we have, it is almost more difficult to hope for good fortune than to prepare for new terrors. I will compel myself to be calm. I will read Toulon's plan once more, and will impress it word for word upon my memory, so as to burn the dangerous sheet as soon as possible. And while you are doing that, I will unwind the ball that Toulon brought us, and which certainly contains something heavy, said the princess. What a grand, noble heart! What a lofty character has our friend Toulon, whispered the queen. His courage is inexhaustible, his fidelity is invincible, and he is entirely unselfish. How often have I implored him to express one wish to me that I might gratify, or to allow me to give him a draft of some amount. He is not to be shaken. He wants nothing. He will take nothing. Ah, Elizabeth, he is the first friend of all who ever drew toward me, who made no claims and was contented with a kind word. When I implored him yesterday to tell me in what way I could do him a service, he said, if you want to make me happy, regard me always as your most devoted and faithful servant, and give me a name that you give to no one besides. Call me Fidel, and if you want to give me another remembrancer than that which will always live in my heart, present me as the highest token of your favor, with the little gold-smelling bottle which I saw you use in the logograph box on that dreadful day. 
I gave him the trinket at once. He kneeled down in order to receive it, and when he kissed my hand, his hot tears fell upon it. Ah, Elizabeth, no one of those to whom in the days of our happiness I gave jewels, and to whom I gave hundreds of thousands, cherished for me so warm banks as Toulon, no, as Fidel, for the poor, insignificant little remembrancer. God is good and great, said the princess, who, while the queen was speaking, was busily engaged in unwinding the thread. In order that we might not lose faith in humanity and confidence in man, he sent us in his mercy this noble, true-hearted one, whose devotion, disinterestedness, and fidelity were to be our compensation for all the sad and heart-rending experiences which we have endured, and therefore, for the sake of this one noble man, let us pardon the many from whom we have received only injury. For it says in the Bible that, for the sake of one righteous man, many sinners shall be forgiven, and Toulon is a righteous man. Yes, he is a righteous man, blessings on him, whispered the queen. Then she took the paper in her hand and began to read the contents softly, repeating every sentence to herself and imprinting every one of those hope-bringing words upon her memory. And while she read, her poor crushed heart gradually began to beat with firmer confidence and to embrace the possibility of realizing the plan of Toulon and finding freedom in flight. During this time, Princess Elizabeth had unwound the thread of the ball and brought to light a little packet enveloped in paper. Take it, my dear Antoinette, she said. It is addressed to you. Marie Antoinette took it and carefully unfolded the paper. Then she uttered a low, carefully suppressed cry and, sinking upon her knees, pressed it with its contents to her lips. What is it, sister? cried the princess, hurrying to her. What does Toulon demand? The queen gave the paper to the princess. Read, she said. Read it, sister. Elizabeth read, Your majesty wished to possess the relics which King Louis left to you. They consist of the wedding ring of his majesty, his little seal, and the hair which the king himself cut off. These three things lay on the chimney-piece in the closed sitting-room of the king. The supervisor of the temple took them from Clary's hand, to whom the king gave them, and put them under seal. I have succeeded in getting into the sitting-room, I have opened the sealed packet, taken out the sacred relics, put articles of similar character in their place, and sealed it up again. With this letter are the relics which belong to your majesty, and I swear by all that is sacred and dear to me, I swear by the head of the queen that they are the true articles which the blessed martyr, King Louis the Sixteenth, conveyed to his wife in his testament. I have stolen them for the exalted heir of the crown, and I shall one day glory in the theft before the throne of God. Footnote. Goncourt, Estor de Marie Antoinette page three hundred and eighty four see elizabeth said the queen unfolding the little things each one of which was carefully wrapped in paper see there is his wedding ring there on the inside are the four letters m a a a nineteenth april seventeen seventy the day of our marriage a day of joy for austria as well as for france then but i will not think of it let me look further here is the seal the cornelian engraved on two sides here on one side the french arms as you turn the stone the portrait of our son the dauphin of france with his helmet on his head 
oh my son my poor dear child will your loved head ever bear any other ornament than a martyr's crown will god grant you to wear the helmet of the warrior and to battle for your rights and your throne how pleased my husband was when on his birthday i brought him this seal how tenderly his looks rested upon the portrait of his son his successor and now oh now king louis the sixteenth cruelly shamefully murdered and he who ought to be the king of france louis the seventeenth is nothing but a poor imprisoned child a king without a crown without hope without a future no no antoinette whispered elizabeth who had kneeled before the queen and had tenderly put her arms round her no antoinette do not say that your son has no hope and no future build upon god hope that the undertaking which we are to-morrow to execute will lead to a fortunate result that we shall flee from here that we shall be free that we shall be able to reach england oh yes let us hope that toulon's fine and bold plan will succeed and then it may one day be that the son of my dear brother grown to be a young man may put the helmet on his head gird himself with the sword reconquer the throne of his fathers and take possession of it as king louis the seventeenth therefore let us hope sister yes therefore let us hope whispered the queen drying her tears and here at last she continued opening the remaining paper here is the third relic the hair of the king the only thing which is left us of the murder king the unfortunate husband of an unfortunate wife the pitiable king of a most pitiable people oh my king they have laid your poor head that bore this white hair they have laid it upon the scaffold and the axe the dreadful axe the queen uttered a loud shriek of horror sprang up and raised both her hands in conjuration to heaven while a curse just trembled on her lips but princess elizabeth threw herself into her arms and pressed on the cold quivering lips of the queen a long fervent kiss for god's sake sister she whispered speak softly if tyson hears your cry we are lost hush it seems to me i hear steps hide the things let us hurry into bed oh for god's sake quick she huddled the papers together and put them hastily into her bosom while marie antoinette gathering up the relics dashed into her bed she is coming whispered elizabeth as she slipped into her bed we must pretend to be asleep and in fact princess elizabeth was right the glass door which led from the sleeping room of the children to the little corridor and from there to the chamber of mistress tyson was slowly and cautiously opened and she came with the lamp in her hand into the children's room she stood near the door listening and spying around in the beds of the children she could hear the long-drawn calm breathing which indicated peaceful slumbers and in the open adjoining apartment in which the two ladies slept nothing was stirring but i did hear a sound plainly muttered tyson i was awaked by a loud cry and when i sat up in bed i heard people talking she stole to the beds of the children and let the light fall upon their faces they are sleeping soundly enough she muttered they have not cried or spoken but we will see how it is in the other room slowly with the lamp in her hand she crept into the neighboring apartment the two ladies lay motionless upon their beds closing their eyes quickly when mistress tyson crossed the threshold and praying to god for courage and steadfastness 
Tyson went first to the bed of Princess Elizabeth and let the lamp fall full upon her face. The glare seemed to awaken her. What is it? she cried. What has happened? Sister, what has happened? Where are you, Marie Antoinette? Here, here I am, Elizabeth, cried the queen, rising suddenly up in bed, as if awakened. Why do you call me? And who is here? It is I, muttered Tyson, angrily. That is the way if one has a bad conscience. One is startled then with the slightest sound. We have no bad conscience, said Elizabeth gently. But you know that if we are awakened from sleep, we cry out easily, and we might be thinking that someone was waking us to bring us happy tidings. I hope so, cried Tyson with a scornful laugh. Happy news for you. That means unhappy and sad news for France and for the French people. No, thank God, I did not waken you to bring you any good news. Well, said the Queen gently, tell us why you have wakened us and what you have to communicate to us. I have nothing at all to communicate to you, growled Tyson, and you know best whether I wake you or you were already awake, talking and crying aloud. Hist! It is not at all necessary that you answer. I know well enough that you are capable of lying. I tell you my ears are open and my eyes too. I let nothing escape me. You have talked and you have cried aloud, and if it occurs again, I shall report it to the supervisor and have a watch put here in the night again, that the rest of us may have a little quiet in the night time and not have to sleep like the hares with our eyes open. But, said the princess gently, but dear woman, hush, interrupted Tyson commandingly, I am not your dear woman, I am the wife of Citizen Tyson, and I want none of your confidence, for confidence from such persons as you are might easily bring me to the scaffold. She now passed through the whole room with her slow, stealthy tread, let the light fall upon every article of furniture in the floor, examined all the objects that lay upon the table, and then, after one last threatening look at the beds of the two ladies, went slowly out. She stopped again at the cribs of the children and looked at them with a touch of gentleness. How quietly they sleep, she whispered. They lie there exactly as they lay before. One would think they were smiling in their sleep. I suppose they are playing with angels. I should like to know how angels come into this old horrid temple, and what Simon's wife would say if she knew they came in here at night without her permission. See, see, she continued. The boy is laughing again and spreading out his hands, as if he wanted to catch the angels. Ah, I should like to know if my dear little Solange is sleeping as soundly as these children, and whether she smiles in her sleep and plays with angels. I should like to know if she dreams of her parents, my dear little Solange, and whether she sometimes sees her poor mother, who loves her so and yearns toward her so tenderly that. Footnote. This Mistress Tyson, a cruel keeper of the Queen, soon after this fell into lunacy, owing both to her longings after her daughter and her compunctions of conscience for her treatment of the Queen. The first token of her insanity was her falling upon her knees before Marie Antoinette and begging pardon for all the pain she had occasioned, and amid floods of tears accusing herself as the one who would be answerable for the death of the Queen. She then fell into such dreadful spasms that four men were scarcely able to hold her. They carried her into the Hotel Dieu, where she died after two days of the most dreadful sufferings and bitter reproaches of herself. See Goncourt page 280. She could not go on. 
tears extinguished her utterance and she hastened out to silence her longings on the pillow of her bed the ladies listened a long time in perfect silence then when everything was still again they raised themselves up softly and began to talk to each other in the faintest of whispers and to make their final preparations for the flight of the morrow they then rose and drew from the various hiding-places the garments which they were to use placed the various suits together and then tried to put them on a fearful awful picture such as a painter of hell such as bruegel could not surpass in horror a queen and a princess two tender pale harmless women busied deep in the night as if dressing for a masquerade and transforming themselves into those very officials who had led the king to the scaffold and who with their pitiless iron hands were detaining the royal family in prison there they stood a queen a princess clad in the coarse threadbare garments of republican officials the tricolored sashes of the one indivisible republic around their bodies their heads covered with the three-cornered hats on which the tricolored cockade glittered they stood and viewed each other with sad looks and heavy sighs ah what bright joyous laughter would have sprung from the lips of the queen in the days of her happiness if she had wanted to hide her beauty in such attire for some pleasant masquerade at trianon what charming sport it would have been then and there how would her friends and courtiers have laughed how would they have admired the queen in her original costume which might well have been thought to belong to the realm of dreams and fantasies a tricolored cockade a figment of the brain a tricolored sash a merry dream the lilies rule over france and will rule forever no laughter resounded in the desolate room scantily lighted with the dim taper no laughter as the queen and the princess put on their strange fearful attire it was no masquerade but a dreadful horrible reality and as they looked at each other wearing the costume of revolutionists tears started from the eyes of the queen the princess folded her hands and prayed and she too could not keep back the drops that slowly coursed over her cheeks the lilies of france are faded and torn from the ground from the palace of the Tuileries waved the tricolor of the republic and in the palace of the former knights templars is a pale sad woman with gray hair and sunken eyes a broken heart and a bowed form this pale sad shadow of the past is marie antoinette once the queen of france the renowned beauty the first woman in a great kingdom now the widow of an executed man she herself probably with one foot no no she will be saved god has sent her deliverer a friend and this friend this helper in her needs has made everything ready for her flight end of chapter twenty two section two read by ella barnett